As we continue to explore this idea of sitting and suffering, we'll often hear stories of someone who had suffering thrust upon them. On occasion, we'll hear a story like Trisha's, where someone might choose to remain in the suffering. But what we don't often talk about is when there is somebody who chooses to remain in the suffering of another. When someone chooses to stay at the table when a loved one is in prolonged suffering. This situation is wildly prevalent and yet rarely discussed. This is why I'm so grateful for this conversation with Christian. Through his decades-long story, he presses us into this in a raw and beautiful way. And the reality is that these situations of suffering can become so intense that the one that is choosing to remain at the table may be experiencing ramifications that no one knows about. So what do they do? How do they persevere? If you find yourself in that situation, I really believe Christian's story will encourage you. You're listening to episode 118 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you that you've created the space with Christian. And I really do feel like there's some important things that you want to bring out in this conversation. So we want to give this conversation to you. Anything that we may be coming in with thoughts or ideas, we just release all that to you because we know you can do abundantly more with even our simple words. So we give you this time and space. We trust that you can do something beautiful with it. And we thank you in advance for how we believe you will work. I was praying most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christian, I am excited to talk with you. You know, we connected through Podmatch. And and when I saw what your book is about and the focus, I got excited because, you know, I'm in the midst of the season focused on sitting and suffering. And I believe this conversation with you is going to tap into an element of that that just doesn't get talked about very often. Mm -hmm. Before we jump in, as people are listening, is there anything that you want them to know about you and who you are before our conversation starts? Oh, thanks for that opportunity. Because we're going to be mostly talking about really deeply challenging situations of marriage and what it can feel like for the spouse married to somebody with severe mental health issues, talking about myself a little bit, I also have mental health issues. I have two diagnosed conditions. And as a Christian, I went through some pretty challenging times early on. I'm a recovering drug addict. I also, despite my very, very best efforts to find God, you know, with all sincerity to serve him and to learn about him, I just went into a kind of a crisis of faith where I I just wasn't understanding things. It was really when I made the commitment, the decision to fully believe in Jesus, those simple words that we see so often in scripture, I hadn't understood it. I missed it. But when I truly decided to believe in Jesus, it was like, wow, this light that is promised in the scripture started to flow into my life with this open, believing heart. And that was the beginning of a huge change for me that has sustained me to this day that I continue to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart and try to give myself to him more all the time. So that maybe is a helpful backdrop, a little bit more about me. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that and the transparency of it too. And you got right into the thing that excites me about this conversation is this idea of what is the experience like? What is the process like for the person who is walking alongside someone who is in what we would normally think as the story? In many of the conversations I've had in this season and in the last season, there are those clear stories of somebody who's navigating things with mental health or navigating a hard situation. But we don't often talk about the story of those who are also in the mix of that, 
they are the ones walking alongside and sometimes caring and sometimes supporting. You know, there's a lot of ways we could jump into this, but I feel like for you, it sounds like one of the best ways is really through the story yeah. that God's been writing for you. So Christian, tell me a story. <laughs> All right. So after that episode of drug abuse and recovery and coming to God, I really wanted to be married more than anything. I was not one of those guys that took pot shots at women who joked about the foolishness of getting married or looked disrespectfully at women in any way. Honestly, I always thought marriage would be a beautiful thing. And I very much wanted to be married to somebody and have a loving relationship. I grew up in a home where things were stable. Things were quiet, calm, orderly. And there was, in general, a loving marriage there. I wanted that. So I'm a musician. I was a drummer, bass guitar player, lead singer. I put a band together to go on the road. Mm. This was back in the 80s when a lot of hotels did actually pay for bands to play six nights a week. Mm. So I was very excited, put that together. And wouldn't you know, the first night with this new band on the road in southern New Jersey, in walks my wife-to-be. The very first night on the road, mm. we, you know, we get acquainted and we begin seeing each other every day for the next two weeks that we were actually there. I fell in love with her. I'd say within three days, I was like, this is unlike anything. And we were married six months later. Mm. You know, while there was some spirituality in her life, she really hadn't made the move to come to God. And she did make that decision. And I wanted to make sure that we had a Christ-centered marriage. And I was convinced that her decision was real, that you know her spirit had the right intentions. But you know, when you're on the road traveling as a musician, you're not necessarily spending a ton of time because you're out there doing gigs at different hotels. And she would come to visit now and then, and I would end up playing in her town. And there was phone calls, but you don't see each other a lot. And so I didn't see the really extreme behaviors that would come out later at all. There was just a few signs, and I described those in our book in the beginning. There was just one, what would seem like just a bizarre episode, but it was absolutely a foreshadowing of some really awful, gut-wrenching stuff later on. But you just chalk that up to whatever, you know, perhaps, you know, the devil's getting in the way of what's meant to be a great relationship and, you know, just jitters and whatever. You, you just kind of have trust and, you know, ultimately things have panned out. Doctors have called our relationship a statistical outlier mm. when it comes to the chances of actually surviving. It's so common with people with my wife's condition that they end up getting divorced. So ultimately, that faith has borne out. It's just been a lot harder than we thought. So that's kind of the beginning of the story. Happily married after six months knowing each other. We're on the road. She's coming with me. We're continuing to play, living in hotels. And quite soon, she starts to get angry, say irrational things, make unreasonable demands and accusations. And it just goes from being what you think might just be normal newlywed stresses to being like, what is going on here? This just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem normal. But do you really know as a new young husband, do you really understand what's abnormal and mentally unhealthy? You don't. So, you know, to what degree is the devil messing with your marriage? And I do believe that there is a dark side. There is a devil. He's real. He does try to mess with us and destroy our happiness and influence to make bad choices. But 
there were just things that were just so extreme, so negative, so out of bounds. And it happened minimum every three days. No exaggeration. There was never more than three days in that first year of marriage where there was chaos taking place. And she would maybe lie in her bed for a day or two and not want to talk, just stare. And then gradually she'd become that sweet person that I fell in love with. And I guess I should back up to just say everybody to this day thinks of my wife as just a light. She's just this very special, loving individual, great wit, makes people laugh, loves to just bring joy to other people through her jokes and wittiness. And there's just this energy that I didn't have. I mean, she was like a polar opposite to me. I was kind of introverted on the depressive side, didn't realize that I had a mild mental health condition myself. It's bipolar too. It's not often recognized as a unique condition, but it's not the wildly up and down manic version of bipolar one. It's usually misdiagnosed as regular clinical depression but it has distinct attributes and it needs medication. But I didn't know any of that. I just knew that I tended to be introverted, quiet, and a bit on the depressive side. So my wife's behaviors would just aggravate mine. And this would happen within the first few months of marriage. I would be in total shock, quiet, withdrawn, angry at times, but a lot of times just depressed. And then her response, and this has happened for years now, decades, would be, why are you punishing me? And I've talked with one of the readers of my book not long ago where that phrase, why are you punishing me, is very common for folks with my wife's condition, which, by the way, is borderline personality disorder, and she's bipolar one, so the manic form. But borderline personality disorder is just an insidious, complicated, it's not treatable by medications too successfully, bipolar one is, but not that other condition. Bottom line is we ended up in just a messy, confusing, painful situation. And after the first year, I decided to get off the road with the band and we decided to separate. I made that decision. And by the way, ultimately we were separated four times. I initiated each one. I mean, living in separate places, filed for divorce twice, and I can share a bit more of how we ended up getting together again. But, you know, we talk about your theme of sitting and suffering. Yeah, you have so many things that go through your mind of, you know, of course, what am I doing to cause this? Mm-hmm. What can I do to help remedy it? It's the serenity prayer. Give me the courage to change the things that I can, the wisdom to know the difference of those that I can't, right? And you're constantly reevaluating what should I just be patient with versus what should I take action on? And the amount of self-reflection is very positive as you're trying to think about what can I change? What can I do to be a better person? How can I handle this differently? How can I exercise more faith in God? And what does he want me to do in this? I mean, you're just constantly processing, processing, processing. It just wears you out. Yeah. And then by year 10 <laughs> or so, maybe 15, and we've been married 36 years, by year 10 or 15, I was actually diagnosed with PTSD mm. as a result of the trauma of what I was going through. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing this. And again, it's, this is just such a unique topic within this conversation, because on one hand, you could have the person who's in the midst of a struggle and they have no choice but to sit in suffering. But somebody could look at you and say, well, you're choosing to sit in this space. Right. People can really struggle to know how to understand your choice, how to interact with your choice. Some could look at you and say, oh, man, well, you're just letting yourself be a doormat or you deserve better than that. You deserve to be loved, Christian. Come on, you deserve, you know, and all these things. 
you could try your best to broad sweep why you've remained, but you, you started to tap into it just now. It's very nuanced. It is. <laughs> I mean, at the start of it, you don't know what's going on. So you're trying to, what in the world is right. happening? Is this me? Is this her? Did I do something wrong? Then when you start to learn, you're trying to decipher, well, is this the bipolar or is this like a reaction she shouldn't have? Like, do I just let this happen? Do I confront? And right. then even if you start to figure that out, once you get to 10 years, 15 years, I mean, I really appreciate you naming the fatigue piece, but yeah, I mean, you were diagnosed with PTSD. Like the traumatic impact on you was clinically real. Yeah. I do want to press into this question mm -hmm. of, you know, you mentioned it. You're like, I can get into why we got back together and you know, you can get into the fact that it's 36 years. You noted that it's an anomaly that you would remain married. But I'd love for you to share a little bit more about why you chose to remain knowing all those factors, knowing all those external voices and knowing your own personal desire. Yeah, this is a key question. And it also hits at the heart of why we chose to write the book specifically to a Christian audience is because it's not possible to describe really thrived and persevered through this relationship without speaking about the spiritual aspects. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, marriage is a very important covenant relationship with God and with each other. I mean, that's well established with a careful study of the Bible. We take that view very seriously. We feel it in our hearts. It's one thing to see words on a page, but we feel it in our hearts that marriage is ordained of God. It's very important. It's not to be tossed to the side lightly. It just isn't. Mm. I also believed in the importance of praying about important decisions. I did learn how to pray before we got married. I really learned how to pray and get answers to prayer. And I mean answers like guidance, like knowing, is this the right thing for me? And sure, we pray for blessings and so forth, but guidance is such an important part. Mm -hmm. And I received a very strong, unusually strong confirmation that this marriage was right. Mm. And I also counseled with some folks, some capable folks, like some church folks who gave me good advice. And there was just validation there from multiple sources that this was right. And I felt it in my heart. And I loved my wife incredibly, you know, right from the get-go. After we got separated, after that first year, I was so exhausted and confused. I literally knelt before God and said, I don't want this anymore. I'm done. I am absolutely done. I know that that confirmation I had, I'm out. Yeah. And I received a very immediate, even stronger response. It's too sacred, really, to share in detail. But it was brief. It was very vivid. And I never, to this day, forgot that I knew that that was an answer from God that gave me renewed strength and vision to go at it again. Mm -hmm. To answer that question, why did you stay with those kinds of spiritual manifestations and with that kind of belief that God is real, that covenants with marriage are also a covenant with God, I felt this conviction to continue. But right now, in case any of your listeners drop off, I do not want to leave anybody with the impression that we would recommend staying in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. So we have an entire chapter in our book called, Can I Survive This? Mm -hmm. And that's a very fair question. You know, we strongly recommend praying about it, but also looking reality in the eye. And there's a lot of forms of abuse and persistent abuse is just not acceptable. And, and God doesn't expect us to submit ourselves to that kind of abuse. We just don't believe that at all. But although I was abused, there's no question that I was being emotionally abused. I knew my wife's heart 
and I knew sometime after that first year as we started to get medical help that her intentions and desires were good. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between the determined kind of negative, kind of evil, kind of abuser, just a, I don't know, like you said, there's so nuanced, there's such gray areas. I mean, it's beyond human understanding. And I think that's another reason for prayer so much. I mean, I ultimately had to say, I don't get this. I don't know what to do. Mm. I really need your guidance. And I know that God knows the beginning from the end, and he sees into your spouse's heart more than you can. He knows, just like the great story in the Bible, when Samuel was picking the person to anoint as king, and here comes the little shepherd boy, David, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and says, you know, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but in the heart. Well, God knew my wife's heart knows her potential, knows her weaknesses, knows my capabilities. And if he says that this match is sanctioned and that he can help us through it, then I'm willing to give it my best shot. Yeah, That's ultimately the answer to your question. Yeah. And what you're pressing into is the invitation for us to confront our perceptions, right? So one of the things I wrote down early on that I really appreciated is that you made it very clear that for you, your wife is like a light. There's a joy and a love. I appreciated the way you said it and that you said it because we struggle in general as people talking about mental health. There's a lot of stigma around that, even more so in the church. Yeah, It's very hard to talk about mental health, and it's very easy to talk about individuals who are working through mental health issues as broad sweeps of that thing. Well, that's a bipolar person. That's a insert name of diagnosis (laughs) as the identity, right? Right. That's not her identity. No. That's not her identity. No. She is a light to you. She is your wife. She is someone you love. And she is a child of God, right. made in the image of God, right. who God loves more than you love her. Right, right. <laughs> and this is the other piece. You know, we press further when we think about marriage. You said that God made it very clear to you when you prayed for guidance that this marriage was right. How does the world define a right marriage? Well, it's where both people are happy and they're supporting each other and they're heading in a positive trajectory and everything's working out. That's a right marriage. Right. Anything less than that. And definitely the story you just told, well, that's that's not right. That yeah. can't be right. Right. That logic makes sense. But you were being invited to operate from a different logic, a different perception where God could say, yeah, I get how bad all this looks. This is right. Then he gave you that emphasis, that sacred moment of making it very clear. No, I want you to know for a fact that this is where I'm inviting you to be. Because in our minds, the goal is that marriage makes us happy, but God might be inviting you to love his daughter well, right? whereas others might not be willing to stay at the table, right? So this idea of perception and being willing to say, I may not fully know, I may not understand, but God does. So if I actually believe that he is God and good, Am I willing to take him at his word? Right. That's hard because it's one thing to have that internal (laughs) thought process. But when that's carried out over a span of time, it can feel like too much. And you've already noted that. When you think of that element of capacity and endurance, how did God carry you through the moments that you were like, God, I'm just, I can't anymore? Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate how you articulated all of what you just said. I think it's so true. We recommend several stellar resources at the end of our book, and one of them is Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Mm. It does such a great job of contrasting biblical marriage versus the world's view, and you describe that perfectly. 
So yeah, I did get a lot of rolling eyeballs and mm-hmm. comments about what are you doing? You know, you do deserve better than this and so forth. But the decision was there to to persevere. And another thing that I do want to clarify is just because every third day there was some kind of really gut-wrenching experience doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot of good times. Yeah. We did have a lot of good times. I mean, when my wife is feeling well, it's impossible not to have a good time. She's very enjoyable company. So, you know, there were vacations with some very bad experiences but also some very good ones. So I think that's an important part of that God gives you respite. I mean, it wasn't a constant drain. But after a while, the up and down is so fatiguing. And honestly, the emotional abuse and the confusion that you experience is so fatiguing. By year 15, 16, somewhere around there, this is after our fourth separation and after the second filing for divorce, which I stopped, Then it all happened again, and I could tell I was getting older. I was getting fatigued. I was really worried. I encountered a great book, which if any of your listeners are facing somebody with borderline personality disorder or there's other sort of affective disorders that are in that family, the book called Stop Walking on Eggshells. Mm -hmm. It's a classic. It's outstanding. It totally changed my life. It gave me insight into why are these behaviors happening and what can I do to avoid triggering them without abusing myself. I also started to learn more about the concept of boundaries, which is critical. It's a chapter on our book called My Spouse is Walking All Over Me. And one of the boundaries that I realized I needed, I mean, I won't even get into all the details, but at night, some of the worst experiences I needed a safe space and we agreed. I couldn't believe she agreed to it, but we agreed for me to sleep in a separate room. And this went on for seven years. Mm. And I kid you not, I could just sense the relief, the, the safety coming to me when I was alone in my room. I just needed that. Yeah. And I needed it for all seven years. I mean, that's a really long time to be recovering from this sense of unsafety. And we made a move after those seven years into a house where there were no extra bedrooms based on the living situation. Mm. And I was very nervous about it. And there were a couple of episodes where I was like, what have I done? Because I don't have that safe space. But it did become manageable. It never got as ugly as it was. And it worked out okay to where that was never needed. You know, you said, what do you do? Well, I think there's the secular, there's the research, there's the mental health, there's the marriage professionals. We value that stuff. We benefited from it. We don't believe that pure reading of the Bible is going to solve all your problems. It's the source. It's the foundation of our life. It's the place to begin. But there are many good, valuable resources out there that we believe and we've promoted. And they have all played their part to help us. But it all starts from the foundation in Christ for us. So apart from those kinds of secular resources and good decisions based on psychology research, like the separate bedrooms, I'll share one deeply spiritual one that it's a favorite story. And since you enjoy stories (laughs) and hopefully your listeners will like this one, I have a hunch that very few people will remember this story in the Bible and definitely not in the context of this metaphor of replenishing the worn out soul. So before King David was David, you'll recall that King Saul, whom he served faithfully for many years, just started to get jealous and started to get angry and really kind of had this evil spirit, tried to kill him, and then ultimately literally chasing him around the wilderness, trying to kill him. And David has gained a following, even though he had won battles for the king. He's got a following of 600 men faithful to him, and they're running around trying to survive in the wilderness. And to feed 600 men in the wilderness, I mean, 
I didn't really think about how hard that might be until I thought about this story more. But at any rate, he had provided support for this guy named Nabal. The you know, context in the Bible suggests that he had provided some protection. So he comes to Nabal, sends a messenger and says, hey, you know, we could really use some supplies for our men. And Nabal rudely dismisses the messenger and says, no way, mm. I don't owe you anything. Mm-hmm. So I do tend to get choked up about this story, and I don't know why, but it became such a powerful metaphor for me because I can relate to, I think, David's extreme exhaustion, frustration, sense of what? Again, we have legitimate needs here, and I'm tired of being mistreated. And he snapped. David absolutely snapped. He said to his men, strap on your swords, because by morning there won't be one man alive left in that camp. We're going in. Well, somehow Nabal's beautiful wife, Abigail, finds out about this plot and comes to David with servants laden with goods. And, you know, things were different back then. She really came at the peril of her life. I think we need to recognize that. And she bowed before David and said, please accept these. And, you know, I I can't quote the whole scriptural phrase, but there's beautiful language that she used, so humble, and said, please accept this. And at this point, she becomes a metaphor for Jesus Christ, that when King David, even though he was prepared to act rashly, that God understands the needs of the soul. And that metaphor I just focused on it. I believed it. I understood it, that Jesus kneels before us, which might seem like a crazy thought, that the Lord God of the universe, the creator of all things, that he would kneel before us and give us those kind of gifts in such a way, but Mm -hmm. he knelt before his apostles and washed their feet. I mean, I had matured in my faith a great deal. I had continued to humble myself before God and, in all honesty, had tried to better myself to be the best version of me that I could be. I believe that you have to give 100% regardless whether you think your spouse is giving 100 or not. So I feel that I was spiritually prepared at that moment to receive and accept that metaphor for what it is and that it's truth. And I began to feel power coming into me. And by the way, I was also writing a book about Jesus Christ, spent 20 years on it to make his life easy for the modern generation. And that experience of immersing myself in his life also filled me with his light. But combined, a deep spiritual satisfaction and peace and power came into me that is far beyond anything. I'm certain that a person who had been afflicted with what I had experienced could have continued Mm -hmm. I never would have survived without God, period. I wouldn't have made it past the first year, let alone this experience I'm sharing with you was at year 27, Mm. (laughs) where problems continued to happen, but my capacity to deal with them was shrinking. To again answer your, I think, very good and important question, when you're sitting in suffering by choice, it's partly by choice, right? (laughs) It's to choose to accept, right? That's really what it is, right? To choose to accept what God has wisely dispensed into your life for his purposes, that it's a combination of do your homework, do your research, leverage good resources, try your best on your own. But ultimately, you need the power of God to sustain yourself when things get this gut-wrenchingly difficult. Yeah. So I'm so grateful for everything you're sharing. And I also know... There's no way in your words to be able to really convey the depth of what you navigated. I mean, you're getting as close as you can (laughs) to like talking about exhaustion, but you're talking about a depth of 
man, I don't even know what words to answer. Like a very hard thing that's hard to communicate in words. And what it makes me think about is the level of loneliness that can come from a space like that, where you're not even sure what's going on. You're trying to figure out, God, why aren't you freeing me from it? But there's no easy way to communicate it to others because, you know, we've been talking for half an hour and we're only scratching the surface. Yeah. How much more if someone's like, hey, how you doing today? And you can't like, let me go into it, what mental health is and how this can play out and all the parameters. I imagine it was incredibly limiting how you could actually communicate this out. Your circle of people that you could actually be fully open with. And I imagine the hardest part is what you essentially had the freedom or permission. Permission is not the word I want to use, but the freedom or permission to share because this isn't just your story. Right. It's your wife's story. So one thing that I would love to hear about is now you're at this place where you can publicly talk about it, right. where you and your wife are being public about it, where you're written a book, putting your business out there. Yeah. Tell me about that part of the journey where you got to a place where it's not just that you understood what was going on, but now together you're stepping into that truth in a new and transparent way. Yeah. My wife grew up, you know, it was pretty dysfunctional circumstance and was told not to talk about it outside of the home. I think that was really common, mm. you know, generations ago. Once she got over that, I mean, we pretty soon, I'd say by year 10, probably, probably less than that, we decided to go ahead and be candid about this and start telling some more people. Mm -hmm. And then by year 20 or so, it was like we were very openly taught. Everybody knew that there were some significant mental health issues there. They understood that, you know, like keeping commitments was a flip of the coin, which drove a lot of people away. I mean, yeah, that you're right that the hurt and the confusion and the loneliness and isolation from the normal flow of society cannot be described. If you've not been with that situation, if you've had a child with mental health issues or any family member, it totally disrupts everything else. And we talk about this in our book about appropriate ways to subtly let people know that I have some unique family circumstances that may require me to be flexible would be a very superficial way to basically say, <laughs> give me some slack, or you open up a little bit more. But at some point in this evolution, Helen kept saying, you know, you really need to write a book about this because she would, you know, very sincerely say, you've become very good at dealing with this. And I think you could help some people. And so we decided to do a jointly authored book, which interestingly, one of the reviews that we got from a professional review organization said that it was one of the most unique aspects of the book was that it is a joint effort. Mm. And it also, most of the chapters actually have a segment where she describes how she felt about that particular topic years ago, mm. and then how with treatment and medication and so forth, she feels about it now. It's stark. I mean, it really kind of grabs you and rattles you compared to, you know, the flow of my writing and explaining everything that was going on. I mean, you really see the reality jump off the page when you think, really? I mean, she really thought like that? I mean, it's astonishing. That, I think, has been very helpful and very effective. So, yeah, this was all her idea, and it is credited to me primarily as the primary author, but with Helen as a co-author. Yeah, yeah. And in a lot of ways, it kind of had to be her idea, right? Like, yeah. just because of the nature of it. And so the invitation for you was to trust God's timing in that, right? And it's like we talked about, it can be one thing to have the resolve to follow God. But then when it's like year after year after year, having to renew that resolve is a spiritual sign of maturity. We get to a place where we realize, no, actually, that renewal is a part of how I continue to serve and honor God and continue to love God and continue to love others is... It can't be a one-off decision. Like I have to keep on choosing to stay at the table. Yeah. You know what I think is so beautiful about all of this 
is, again, the world's understanding of marriage is that it is for the two people to be happy and for things to go well. And there is a limit to what people are willing to endure or even how much they want others to endure. And decades is well past that limit. (laughs) You know, based on what you mentioned about eye rolls and things like that, there's probably plenty of people engaged with that. You went well past the limit of what they think you should have. But now on this end of it, you are now being invited into this opportunity to walk alongside others who may still be in that space that we described that you were in, where (laughs) there is this sense of loneliness or feeling unknown or feeling like nobody understands or feeling like I can't explain this to anyone. Yeah. And so there may be someone that's at the end of their rope. They're at the place that you were like, God, I've been trying to follow. I know what you said, but I just can't do this anymore. That could open up your book, read the words and say, oh my gosh, he's in my head right now. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. There's something about being known that could be so restorative and healing. And for you and your journey, is there a moment where you felt known and it was just so restorative? Yeah. I I mean, it was that book, Stop Walking on Eggshells, basically depicted my life experience. And I finally felt like, oh my goodness, this is putting all these weird dots together. And people have reached out to us about, you know, reading our book. I mean, it's selling quite well, which indicates that there's need. People are desperately searching for help in these troubled relationships. You know, one of the first things that they'll say is it just feels so good to be understood and to know that there are others who have been through this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that in itself. I mean, Stephen Covey, I saw him once and he used this phrase. I don't remember if he ever wrote it anywhere, but he used this phrase that being understood is like emotional oxygen. Mm-hmm. I think it's so true. People crave it. They just desperately want to be understood. And a spouse like me in a relationship like ours, that was rare. Yeah. People did not understand. I was holding so much that nobody could possibly understand except a professional or somebody in my position. Yeah. I would hope that people hear your heart in all of this and really get past the surface level pieces. Like the takeaway here isn't for someone to say, oh, wow, Christian's such a great job. And he just stayed in that relationship and persevered. And because based on what you've already shared, one, like it was God's power and capacity. But two, your wife is not a broad sweep. Your marriage is not a broad sweep. We really struggle with trying to understand, like we've got to box stuff in to be able to talk about it, but that's just not how anything in life really works. And so the invitation here is for us to get better about avoiding the broad sweeps and actually seeing people as made in the image of God, seeing situations as nuanced and learning how to stay at the table and sit with people and being willing to long journey, to not get caught up on the quick fixes and the quick answers. To love others requires to see them and to sit with them. And when we look at Job, that's where the problem started to happen is the friends were doing that. They were sitting with Job, but it's when they opened their mouths and started telling him what he did wrong or how he needed to fix it. And Job's like, but you don't understand what's actually happening. You (laughs) think you understand, but you don't understand. And they added another level of pain and heartbreak to him. And God didn't even give him answers, right? Because that was never the point of it. I want to name how grateful I am that you and your wife are stepping into this space. You're putting your stuff out there, which doesn't come without risk or cause. This is the big thing. The thread that I want people to catch is all throughout this. The core thing is that to the best of your ability, you are trying to seek God. You're trying to be prayerful about marriage in the first place. You are prayerful choosing to get married, choosing to stay in the marriage. 
prayerful throughout when you had nothing left to give, prayerful when God told you to stay. And that's not a credit to you being, even though your name's Christian, yeah. <laughs> it's not about you being a super Christian, right? because that invitation is true for all of us. Yeah. All of us have the capacity to choose to keep on stepping towards God. But that, that's the beautiful piece of the story and what God can do through it. So I just wanted to name how grateful that I am that you are stepping into space. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a great deal. We have felt, you know, prompted and sustained, and we've been given the resources to be able to do this. And we are touched when we hear that people are helped. It, it is a great thing. It's been an exciting journey. And by the way, for any of your listeners that want to learn more about it, there's a URL, stormymarriage.info, stormymarriage.info, not .com. Mm -hmm. The name of the book is Healing the Stormy Marriage, Hope and Help for You when your loved one has mental health or addiction issues. Technically, addiction is considered a mental health condition, but we called it out because a lot of people view it separately and it leads to a lot of the same painful dynamics in a relationship. Yeah. We do hope that we can touch others. And I just love the deeply spiritual way in which you approach this podcast and this conversation. It's been unique and very special in that respect. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Ultimately, I do want to touch on what you said about the bigger picture here. God has a plan for us. He created this earth for a wise purpose, right? It is so wise and so full of love beyond what we understand. And each of us is so important to him. I mean, I like how Rick Warren said it. We quoted it in our book. God's not as much interested in your comfort as he is in your character. Mm-hmm. It's about growing our character to become more like Jesus Christ, which is painful at times. But he has worked his work in our life. I'm a very different person than I was many years ago in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for God's wisdom in doing that. My wife has grown a great deal. Our families have been blessed by what's happened here, I think, as they've observed our suffering and our devotion to God. There's been many blessings. So we have to trust God's wisdom first. So our cross to bear, so to speak, was our mental health challenges. People have different ones. But to sit in suffering with faith that God knows what he's doing, that he's smarter than us, that he loves us, and that he's working his plan in our life, I mean, that's wisdom that, that's imparted by God's Spirit, isn't it, to help us really make the most of our life. And it's worked for us. So that's our testimony to you and your listeners. It's really good. Well, I always like to close out with a few questions. And the first one is this. Let's say that there is somebody listening now that's in a similar situation. They feel like God is inviting them to sit in a space that is going to feel a lot like suffering. And they're willing to accept that invitation, but they're at the end of themselves. What would you say to the person who is willingly accepting that invitation to sit in the suffering? I would say first and foremost, believe in Jesus Christ. Make the conscious decision to say, I believe. And by the way, the Greek word translated as believe is a combination of believe, trust, and obey. So it's this full conviction to focus on Jesus Christ first. I think that's step one. If you're going to sit in suffering, do it in wisdom, but in his light, and you activate his life in your light, just like turning on a switch. It's this flow of light from the heavens when we activate our believing heart by focusing on Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the light of the world. He's the way. Mm -hmm. And when we start there, all good things will follow. I really believe that. That's good. 
The second question you've already tapped into a little bit, but I want to really emphasize this, you know, for anyone that wants to learn more, what's the name of the book? Mm -hmm. Where do they find it? What can they do? Yeah, absolutely. So you can start by stormymarriage.info and all the online retailers carry this book. Barnes and Noble, some locations carry it physically as well. So healing the stormy marriage. The cover has a couple holding each other under a red umbrella surrounded by a very colorful storm. Mm. It's a great symbol for what it's like. It's sticking together, shielding yourself and God against the storm of life, healing the stormy marriage, hope and help for you when your loved one has mental health or addiction issues. That's great. And the last question before we go, is there anything else on your heart that you want to share? I just want to share my gratitude for you and this forum to share this message with the world. I think that is a beautiful thing. I want to thank your listeners for caring enough about following God and seeking inspired resources to strengthen them and sticking with till the end of the program. I hope that this has been touching. I sincerely hope that you felt God's spirit touching your heart and giving you a bit of hope. If you can relate to this, there really is hope. We survive more than many couples do because we did trust in God. And that's why the first word in our subtitle is hope. There is hope out there. We have such a resistance to suffering that it's easy to ask why in the world would anyone choose suffering? And why would they choose to remain in suffering when the suffering isn't even theirs? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's one really good reason that we find in Philippians 2. In verse 5, we're invited to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We've talked about this verse before, but it's incredibly relevant in this idea of choosing to sit in the sufferings of others. Because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, chose to come down and sit with us in our suffering. There was so much suffering that Jesus encountered that he willingly chose to remain, where he willingly chose to engage with profound love. And verse 5 says that we are to have this mind among ourselves. The truth is, if the suffering isn't ours, we can make a good case for why we shouldn't inflict ourselves with it. But we are called to something greater than comfort. We are called to love, love that is beyond our understanding and beyond our capacity. In fact, the prior verses really press us on this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 1 presses heavily into a singular you. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from love, if you have any participation in the Spirit, if you have any affection and sympathy. You know, we live our lives in a very individualistic way, our relationship with God in a very individualistic way. 
But what Paul is saying here is, hey, is that something you have? Well, that's not complete. There is something deeper, something more profound, something fuller that you are being invited to. So all of you, plural, complete my joy by all of you being of the same mind, all of you having the same love, all of you being in full accord and of one mind, all of you do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, all of you count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, every single one of you, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God invited Christian to live this out in a really profound and challenging way. There are so many moments where he would have been justified in thinking of his own interests, of thinking that he was more significant. But the example of Jesus showed him another way. The example of Jesus showed him what humility could do. And it was long and it was hard. And Christian often did not have the capacity, but God did. At every single moment, the capacity was ready for him to receive if he was willing. If you've been given that hard call to remain with someone who is in suffering, and you feel like you are often unappreciated or unseen or misunderstood, or you feel alone because nobody knows the burden that you're carrying, know that you are not alone and know that God knows. God sees you, God is with you, and he is ready to provide the capacity you need to keep taking step after step. Because there is something more profound than a comfortable life that God is working on here. He is exhibiting his love in a deeper way than you may ever understand. He is allowing you to participate in a deeper expression of love than you would have ever thought you deserved to be a part of. It is a hard call, but you are being invited by a good, powerful, loving God. So no matter how hard it is, choose today to have the same mindset of Christ as you step forward. Choose today to believe that God is with you in the midst and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation, but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible. Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free. Get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult 
and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, where you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?